0: companies that build on top of our API are able to grow faster than before. So four or five years ago, people would integrate the back-end API, but then they had to build the front-end from scratch. Yeah, it's becoming a bigger trend where API providers like Stream are offering both the back-end API as well as these component libraries for the various front-end solutions. From
1: GGV, this is founder Real Talk where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm really excited to be joined by my colleague, Tiffany Luck. Hey, Tiffany. Hi, Glenn. It's great to have you. And we're super excited to be welcoming Terry Schellenbach to the show. Terry's the co-founder and CEO of Stream a scalable API platform that's growing really rapidly. Terry's Zooming in from Boulder, Colorado today, but he founded Stream in 2014 in his home country, the Netherlands. He graduated cum laude from Erasmus University in Rotterdam with a degree in international business administration, and he founded his first company during his time there, so he's a serial founder. GGV's really proud to have led Stream Series A earlier this year, And uh, we've been uh, remarkably impressed by the growth that the company has been able to achieve since. We're going to talk today about how Stream has started, how the company has navigated the ever-changing landscape of APIs and all things Stream. Terry, thanks for joining us today, and welcome to Founder Real Talk.
0: Glad to be here, Glenn.
1: Awesome. So let's go back a little bit on your career first. In 2007, you created Faciolista. I think I got that right, which really set the groundwork, I think, for Stream. have It sounded like you found that even in this first startup, your user base grew so fast that uh, for your API at the time. So you had a challenge on how to scale the needs of your user base. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. And was that the spark for Stream? And really, like when you decided to, to start Stream, what was the problem you wanted to go solve?
0: yeah that was a really uh interesting journey working on my uh on my first startup uh you always hope that things go well, but yeah we started adding millions of users in a relatively short uh time period, so it was a bit like like Pinterest and wish uh before those startups were around so it was maybe a year before pinterest came along uh so we went through this really rapid growth with like magazines talking about us bloggers talking about us, just this viral growth that was hard to keep up with. In an ideal world, right, you'd like your your engineering and your product team to be focused on growing the community, improving the product. Uh, But instead, we were spending all our time uh, fixing the activity feed. So that was definitely a lesson that we we learned. Uh, That company eventually ended up selling. And my co-founder, Tommaso, he was a lead engineer at my prior startup, and I, we were talking about what to do next. And we saw... This uh, this bigger trend in the market with companies like SendGrid starting to power email, companies like Algolia starting to power search, and we had this really in depth experience with uh, with activity feeds, and that was uh, that was interesting to us. Like, why are all these companies building this, including us? Why why are they all building that in house and dealing mm-hmm. with the, the difficulty of that? And that was really the motivation for for starting Stream.
1: Okay, great. We're going to get a little bit more into the the model, the API uh, model in this conversation. Looking forward to, to learning more about it. So you originally founded Stream in, in Amsterdam with Tommaso, as you mentioned, but you quickly found yourself moving to New York in two thousand fifteen to join Techstars. It'd be really curious, like how did that all happen? And talk to us about what that experience was like, maybe what some of the takeaways were from from you know starting in Amsterdam, moving to New York, and being in a in a Tech Stars program that quickly.
0: Yeah. So It was a crazy journey because we were maybe one or two months into starting Stream. So Tomas and I just decided to start Stream. We had our first handful of customers, uh, which went pretty quickly. But we got in touch with Alex Iskolt from from Techstars, Techstars New York. And Alex ran his own social network. So we were on calls with him and he really understood the whole problem space and the, the general vision and problem that we were trying to solve so shortly after starting the company, I think it was only 2 or 3 months after starting the company we were accepted into Techstars New York. Spent uh, 4 months over there and uh, it was a, yeah, it was a lot of fun to participate in that in that program. Alex has been uh, it's been great. He's still supporting us like 5 years later, which has been uh, it's been encouraging. Yeah, did a lot of the companies that you that you funded go through Techstars? Was that common or
1: We haven't had that many. And one thing I'm curious about is, you know, it's a pretty big move, right? Uh, very early on in your career and certainly early on in the, in the time of the company to like pick up stakes and move continents and you know to a brand new city while all while you're, you're, you're trying to start a company do you you know looking back on it was it a crazy decision what it seems like it was the right decision but if you had to do it all again knowing what you know now are you kind of surprised you did it and do you feel like it's something you'd recommend to other founders
0: yeah, so I think it's also part of that learning from the first startup is uh, we had this crazy growth. We grew to millions of users, but as we grew, it became harder and harder to compete with some some other players in the market that raised tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. It was always very difficult to raise funding in Europe. So for my next startup, I always knew that I either wanted to uh, somehow get access to American venture capital or uh, do something more local to Europe. There was another startup in Amsterdam that I that I met back in the days, and they started doing payments in Europe. A company called Atien.
1: Yeah, they're doing okay. They're doing okay now.
0: Yeah, and I think in a way, some of them, it's important during those early days of a startup that they have something. They have something local. I think it's very hard for a European company to compete directly with American companies just because of the the big difference in uh, access to capital.
2: Sounds good. Well, quite the journey for you and Tommaso. Great journey over the last five years. Wanted to see if we could talk a little bit more about, you know, Streams product evolution as well. So, Stream started out uh, really focused on activity feeds to solve the problem that you had with your first startup, and then recently you, you also added in-app messaging, which has really taken off. So, can you talk to us about what what that was like? What was the transition like to multi-product company, and was a result of customer feedback? How's it been going?
0: Yeah, I'd like to claim that we had some genius insight, but what happened is that our customers started building. Messaging and chat on top of our activity feed API. So I started jumping on calls with with some of these companies, and I asked them like, "Why are you doing this?" Because you, from like a non technical perspective, basically it's people building chat by sending tweets. Like it kind of works, but not really. So we spoke to many of these customers, and it turned out that there were no, in their minds, there were there were no good solutions in the market for for chat and for messaging. So after having that conversation, maybe a couple dozen times. We decided to leverage our technology in the, in the chat and messaging space as well. It's difficult, of course, to run two, two products at the same time, but we had the, the benefit that most of the apps that have an activity feed also tend to have chat and that the underlying technology is very similar between activity feeds and chat. So it turned out better than we could have ever thought. We launched uh, the chat API, and within 12 months, it overtook our feed revenue. I was hoping it would do well, but I didn't expect it would grow this quickly. It's been
2: it's been a fun journey. Yes, yes, it has. Great growth. And makes sense. You know, it's easy for a customer to go to stream and actually now get, get both activity feeds and in-app messaging. And so I think that's a good transition into just talking a little bit more broadly about the API model, which is obviously critical to your business and similar to what we see from Twilio, Stripe, Algolia, and others. Why is this model so powerful in your mind?
0: So I think the API integration is very powerful because you have a lot of flexibility and thinking about the use case like building chat or messaging the API is so flexible that you can pretty close to build any type of chat or messaging interface and I think that's that's one of the main reasons why teams like leveraging these these APIs I think the other benefit is that it's enabling product owners to move much faster than they ever could before. So the in the past, people would say that you're building chat, you would go to Amazon, you buy, you rent a server, you have to install software on there, you have to build that software, you have to maintain it. You're doing all of these things just to get the chat functionality working in your app. It's a very labor-intensive process. If you need to add features, you need to do more custom development work. It's all very it really slows down the pace at which a product team is able to iterate. And I think that's one of the main reasons why the API model is uh, is becoming so successful because we enable product teams to to move faster and to focus on what makes their app unique instead of some of these underlying
2: components. Makes total sense. And so it really lets the the engineers and the product owners focus on their core functionality and, and leaving the, you know, in-app messaging and or activity feeds to stream to maintain and build.
0: Yeah, and I think the the other flip side of that is that some of these engineers who've worked on a certain feature set for a long time are creating startups around that. I thought it was, uh, was very uh, inspiring to see uh, Nicolas and Julianne from Algolia, um, two guys that have worked in search for a really long time, uh, start Algolia and kind of leverage that that expertise that they have with that feature set and make it reusable. Uh, it's um, There were a lot of good providers already in the search space with uh, things like Elastic. Uh, but then Algolia came along, and I thought that was really... Really exciting, and this is becoming a bigger trend. It's uh, it's almost like a golden age for some of these engineers to reuse the best practices that they've learned and build companies around that. You see that with Algolia, with Mapbox, with Datadog, with Radar. It's uh, yeah, it's an exciting time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then, what's the you know what in your mind is the impact on product teams? How does this help product owners?
0: The largest benefit that they get is being able to get to market faster. So time to market is is much better than before. They're able to iterate faster. Companies that build on top of our API are able to grow faster than before. So as I said at my at my previous company, we grew to millions of of members, and uh, that was a very difficult journey. So every time we added uh, a couple hundred thousand members, we would have new scaling issues, new issue, uh, new challenges. It was not easy at all. And if you see some of the newer apps leveraging uh, our APIs. Uh, One example is Bunch, Bunch Bunch.life, one of the fastest growing social startups out there right now. They use Stream for the chat side of things and they use Agora, another GGV portfolio company for the audio and video side of things. So because of that, they can grow really rapidly without having to worry about the underlying tech of some of these things.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It also seems like you can unwind the decisions quicker, right? If things aren't working, it's not like you've got you know, you've built up a, a team of engineers that are, you know, owning the product. And if you decide to go a different direction, it's kind of a lot easier to pull an API out.
0: Yeah, we do get that sometimes, that customers of Stream, they, they tell us like, well, the chat functionality in our app is not really working out. So we stopped uh, we stopped supporting that. Mm. And uh, of course, we don't like hearing this, but uh, I think it's a big difference between things that you build in-house, because if you build chat in-house or messaging in-house or like any type of functionality, your team tends to be a little attached to that. And it tends to be that, it tends to be harder for product managers to remove things that don't work. So I think that's another advantage as well.
1: Yeah, I've also heard uh, people say, like, one of the brilliant things about the API is like, you get the design win, if you will, like to use kind of, um, you know, hardware parlance. You get the design win before anybody even like figures it out. Like, you know, some engineer brings in an API and the next thing you know, you're designed in and so from a business model standpoint it can be quite disruptive right if you're if you're selling against other providers you're in before they can even knock on the front door yeah very cool so your team is is now very global obviously with your roots in the netherlands you've moved on to to boulder colorado sounds nice hope you're getting some skiing in but you also have a, a bunch of employees in russia as well as, as the netherlands and some in in the boulder area so you guys are all over what are the challenges like for you of running a company that's that global, particularly now that we're all working remotely? You know, just real curious to hear how you're how you're managing in this kind of environment.
0: Yeah. So we, uh, we started out with an office in Amsterdam and one in Boulder. It's on hiring in both of those places. I think we had a little bit of an advantage there because we already had to deal with this complexity of having two time zones. Uh, so all our methodology and how we work together was already set up to be asynchronous. As we grew, uh, so we grew this year from 31 to 93 uh, employees, and we're we're hiring. Wow. So listening to this uh, this podcast, plenty of roles uh, open at the moment. And but I think somewhere around 40 50, we decided to expand the remote side of things more. And uh, it's just I think it's essential nowadays to have a large remote component to your team. Because it's just, it's really challenging, especially for engineering heavy products like like Streams API. It's very hard to find the talent if you can yourself to two offices. So remote has been an important part of how we've been able to grow.
1: Are there some tools you use to guide, help make sure the team stays in sync or anything you've had to kind of iterate on as a team to make sure that uh, you don't lose productivity, but actually gain it?
0: Uh, yeah, so some of this, uh, it was a change for our team, because some of our remote team members, they have been working remote for a long time, and they're, they're used to that setup. And with the whole COVID situation, many of the, well, everyone suddenly became remote. And it was harder to deal with that, because most people were not set up for remote. We have been enjoying tools. Uh, of course, everyone's using Slack. We've also been using Loom a lot, the video sharing tool. One of the important things has been implementing Lattice uh, for improving the alignment between our teams. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Lattice. Yeah, we know it. Great that you're getting good value out of Lattice. Yeah, we're very happy with it, just to make sure that all the teams are aligned around their goals and that their team lead actually checks in with them on how we're progressing on these goals. Yeah, I think as you grow, it's becoming more and more important to make sure that that alignment is in uh, in place. Very
1: cool. And growing, you know, I know... Tiffany's a board member with high expectations, but growing from 30, what'd you say, 31, 90 to 93 people, 93 people. That's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, it was was a bit of an adjustment, but uh, yeah.
1: So lots of new people in the company. You've also, in terms of hiring, brought on a bunch of new execs. And uh, be curious to hear what that process is like, particularly in the virtual world, Um, you know, bringing on senior leaders into your company. What served you well as you've been looking for talent? Are you doing searches or how how are you finding folks? And then um, how are you making sure you vet candidates to ensure you're landing the right folks?
0: Yeah, we've been doing most of our hiring remotely because, indeed, we grew uh, over the last year. Our director of product, Ben, came from uh, Twilio, our VP of marketing, Claire, from a company called Victorops. they were acquired. And yeah, it's been interesting because those two leaders in our company, I have actually never met in person. And they live in Colorado, but I've never met them in person. So it's, it's, it's been a weird uh, dynamic. The thing that we try to do on the on the hiring side of things, we try to hire people maybe like one level below the role that we're, that we're hiring for. I thought it was interesting as well. Uh Frank Sloatman, the CEO of Snowflake, he wrote this book called Tape Sucks. I think that's the title. Yeah,
1: when he was back, that's when he was back at Data Domain. He wrote that, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things he mentioned there as well is to to hire athletes, not resumes. So get people that are motivated, that they have the ability, but they're not proven to succeed at that role yet, and that's what we try to aim for with our uh with our senior hires. Uh, we use our internal recruiting team for most of the hires, and then we tend to complement that with external recruiters. Uh, that's the solution that seems to work best, uh, best for us is to have a, a rather large in-house recruiting team.
1: Is there a question that you you like to ask in interviews with execs that's served you well?
0: I mostly tend to dig into like the metrics that they had to work for in their last role. Because if you start asking about that, especially in, like as an example, the VP of marketing role, if you start talking about the, the the revenue number that they had to drive for the marketing qualified leads, it doesn't really matter like what type of target they had, but you'll quickly notice who actually held a target at their last job and who didn't. So that's uh, that's been effective. Cool.
2: Yeah. Tara, I was going to say, you guys have gotten very good at hiring remotely and onboarding remotely. So you will be in good shape for the future. And I guess the other thing that you, you were really good at is actually fundraising remotely. So... You've never met Claire or Ben, and we've actually never met in person either. But Glenn and I and, and the rest of the team spent a lot of time with you over Zoom. So it would be curious to hear, you know, in, in 2020 work from home world, what was, what was it like fundraising for your Series A entirely remotely?
0: Yeah, so this is the third round that we've done for Stream. When we did our seed round, it was mostly visiting uh, venture capital offices, which You know, it's not uh, the most fun uh, thing to do. I actually thought this whole remote setup for fundraising was interesting. You saw people's kids walking by, uh, like the the weirdest things would happen while you're on a call. And it just had it added some character to the whole process. Very human. Yeah, I think it is a bit. So as a founder, you're able to talk to more venture capital firms, which is good because you want to try to compress that time that you spend on, on fundraising. Fundraising can be very distracting for, for actually growing the business. So you want to reduce that time as much as you can. And doing it remotely, you're able to talk to more VCs in a short period of time. So that's good. But I think the other part is that venture capitalists are also talking to more companies. So the bar is perhaps going up. To me, it also feels like it's becoming less local. So I wonder how this is impacting like local venture capital firms in Colorado, in the Netherlands. Uh, Glenn, any thoughts on, on that? What do you think about the whole local market for venture capital?
1: I think that's a really good point. And Tiffany can attest, like Tiffany and I have, have uh, been on on several calls lately with entrepreneurs who are nowhere near us uh, geographically. A bunch of teams out of Europe, very small early stage teams, you know, we're able to find them nowadays pretty easily through, you know, the investments we've made in technology and sourcing and that kind of thing, or our networks. You know, we, we found, we got to you through an introduction from Nicola at Algolia the algolia founder who we are forever indebted uh, to and you know so so it's location is not a ba- is not a a boundary to finding good opportunities and it it really uh, maybe if 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 the pandemic has taught us anything while it's nice to be nearby it's also not impar- it's not an imperative right and so i think we've gained confidence in investing in companies that where you know founders aren't nearby and teams are very distributed because, you know, the, the tools of the day have gotten so good that people can manage that way. But we're, you know, we're still, we're still early in this journey and we'll have to see how, you know, how companies scale. It's one thing to invest and to see some early progress, but scaling and keeping teams together and really growing big businesses is another question. So we'll see. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then Terry, you know, definitely agree. More people are a lot of meetings are happening, and you probably met with more VC firms this round than you did in previous rounds. What was it like making a decision about, you know, who to bring on as a very long-term partner, without actually, you know, seeing that person in person? Is there anything else that was going through your mind in terms of trying to get to know someone over Zoom?
0: Well, one of the things we we started with the, the superficial, uh, just starting by checking the portfolio. So we looked for in the case of GGV, we looked at the investments in Angora, HashiCorp, uh, which of course it sounded. We also read the article by Glenn. So it felt like there was a lot of alignment around the the general uh, vision. But then what we did after that was a very extensive process of talking to basically any founder within our network who previously interacted with GGV. And that's something that we do whenever we uh, evaluate a new uh, venture capital firm is that we try to get in touch with as many founders as we can. Ideally, the ones that failed or that had a hard experience. <laughs> yeah. And in the case of GGV, we didn't find anyone who was upset, which is surprising because most of the times when I do this with a venture capital firm, even the the big and tier one uh, firms, there's always a founder or someone who's upset with the with the firm, but uh, yeah, you guys have a great reputation in the market. So I think doing that diligence has become really important, uh, especially since you can't meet in person.
2: Yeah, that's fair. You definitely did, did do a lot of checks. People we, you know, didn't even know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we're glad we got through that gauntlet and got to the other side successfully. Back to a little bit on stream. You know, you've seen like obviously you've experienced a dramatic amount of growth. And one of the ways that that's coming is through, you know, companies, customers in lots of different uh, industries. We're not just talking, you know, tech companies that are adopting your API these days. We've got, got healthcare companies and finance, education, fitness, they're all coming to stream. I'm curious, like, w- what you make of that? Did you think that this kind of diversity of customer type would happen so early in your, you know, in, in your growth path? And what does it say for kind of the the API market overall, uh, and the future of your business?
0: Uh, there were definitely some unexpected ones there. So finance started growing really rapidly, healthcare, education. I think some of the m- motivation there, most customers, they select Stream because of time to market, being able to iterate faster. In healthcare, we saw, our, we saw some customers who chose Stream because they wanted to reduce the attack surface on their infrastructure. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so it was more of a security concern, right? Like the less software that you build in house, the less surface that you have, which where things can go wrong. I thought that was, yeah, uh, most other verticals were not so focused on uh, on that. I think the other big change is that it started out when we started Stream. It was very common to do backend integrations, so uh, customers would integrate from Python, from Ruby, Node, and do yeah do a backend integration with Stream. And nowadays, there's this bigger trend where people are integrating stream on the front end of their apps so they're integrating with react with flutter with ios or android yeah it's becoming a bigger trend where api providers like stream are offering both the back end api as well as these component libraries for the various front end solutions i think algolia was one of the first ones to do that algolia odd zero stream started doing it maybe like one or two years ago but it's becoming a really bigger trend for we call it cloud components in the sense that people give you both the API as well as the, the front-end components. And that's uh, that's been growing rapidly.
1: So this gives, if I'm getting you right, it gives companies more tools to get into business with you you know, faster, both on the back-end and the front-end, and they can customize um, the components on the front-end to still still optimize for the look and feel and user experience that they want, but leverage more and more technology from companies
0: like you. Yeah, so four or five years ago, people would integrate the backend API, but then they had to build the frontend from scratch. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason for that was that the frontend was not all that reusable. But then things changed. Uh, React became very popular, React Native, Flutter, SwiftUI, Jetpack Compose. Uh, the frontend of apps is becoming more composable. And because of that, some of the forward-looking API providers like Stripe, Algolia, us are offering these component libraries and the benefit is that they are already integrated with the backend side of things so the difference between building in-house versus using an external provider like stream is becoming even bigger the time to market difference because you can actually give them a a ready-made or like ready integrated solution that is perhaps not as flexible as using the api directly but very close to it given the flexibility of some of these front-end frameworks
1: so one of the cool things about you guys now is you have a lot of customers, right? And an increasing variety of customers. You mentioned earlier that, you know, you took cues from your customer base when building, uh, opting to build chat, on, you know, as a, as a second product on top of uh, the activity feed. And so I'm curious, like, what you're seeing and hearing now, like any interesting stories or use cases from your customers. And if that's inspiring you to think about, new APIs to build, new services to provide to the customers?
0: We see many different customer use cases. It's uh, it's very diverse. Uh, I mentioned Bunch. Bunch.live is like uh, Zoom meets video games. So those guys are obviously doing really well cool. right now. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: we had some surprising customers integrate. So we had Unilever become a customer of Stream for one of their, their apps. fila became a customer of, of Stream as well. Some, some things that I would have never expected. But yeah, we're also seeing many, we're we're always talking to our customers to figure out like what are the adjacent use cases to uh, chat and activity feeds, because I think long-term someone will build the AWS of these cloud components. So we're always looking like which vertical we're going to go into uh, next.
2: Well, if I could use one word to describe everything we've chatted about so far, I feel like that would be growth, you know, growth in the product. So from activity feed to also now including in-app messaging growth in employees from 31 to 93 if that might be a record and you know good growth in the customer base so pretty incredible and with all of that happening very quickly you know i think that that's a good problem to have but what keeps you up at night terry how are you trying to stay ahead of the growth
0: yeah one of the hardest things here is just uh, customer support and onboarding uh, both my co-founder Tommaso, and and i were very we're very product focused, so we want to make sure that every customer who chooses Stream has a good experience. And for the most part, we're succeeding in the, in that in that regard. But it is very difficult that when you're growing so quickly to give every customer the attention that they deserve. And that's one of the things that keeps me up at night, and that we're spending. We're spending a lot of effort on on scaling up our onboarding team, scaling up our customer support, uh, polishing the things that are unclear about our, our product, and uh, that's something that we keep on iterating on a lot. Because I think it's really essential that every customer who chooses Stream has a has a good experience, and if you're growing this quickly, that's uh, that's pretty hard to to ensure. It's a difficult
2: problem. Absolutely, and a lot of your customers are growing that quickly too, right? Especially like. You know, some of the if you just take live events as an example, which, you know, virtual events, of course, has has done incredibly well this year, you know, but they're scaling up rapidly, too. And so you're you're managing the growth within those customers and making sure that streams providing, you know, scalability and reliability all the way through.
0: Yeah, the live event uh, platforms are growing uh, like crazy. And we have many of the bigger platforms on our on our API. So that's been uh, that's been exciting to see. A lot of growth, but it also means that we used to get about 50 customer support tickets a month, and now we get 600. So our, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting uh, challenge.
1: And one other question I, I'd have for you on that is you mentioned the importance of trying to keep your customers happy and how much of a focus that is for you. Are you guys seeing the benefit of that in kind of word of mouth promotion, you know, one customer to the next? Is that where some of the customers, are, new customers are coming from? Is the reputation you're building with other customers, the founders talk to each other and that kind of thing, or... Do you attribute any of your growth to the love that your existing customers are feeling?
0: Yeah. So one of our customers, DubSmash, has been using Stream for, for quite some time. They've been very happy with the experience. Uh, they previously built uh, their activity feed infrastructure in-house, but they sh- that didn't work so well for them. So they switched to Stream. Engineers have friends in different companies and that we grow because of that.
1: It's really cool to hear. So, Terry, we're at that point in the episode where we're going to put you on the hot seat. And uh, this is the speed round, so we're gonna give you a couple questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. What book, or you know, any anything you read, uh, would you recommend to other founders? Traction, traction. Okay, I don't think we've heard that one before. What, what's so good about it?
0: It's a great book on the entrepreneurial operating system. And uh, I've been reading business books for a very long time, studying <laughs> studying business. But I really like this one because it's simple and it's easy to to get the message across to the rest of my management team about how we should run the business. So simplicity is a, is a good reason why I like that book.
2: Okay. All right. What advice would you give to a younger Terry?
0: I would try early on to start uh, mastering two out of the three. So when you're looking at a startup and some of the basic challenges are programming, design, marketing. And I think as a founder, if you can master two out of three, uh, you really improve your odds of, of succeeding. So I think uh, early on, start start learning on one, on one or two of these topics.
2: Or oh, the first two you mastered.
0: I started focused more on the marketing side of things and later on uh, more programming. And I've been reading about programming and how to market startups uh, since I was about 13 or so. Uh, those two things I think are very important. I do think it really changed. When I was learning about programming, I had to go to the library and get a book. And uh, that's how people learned about these about these things. And if you look at some of the newer ecosystems, like uh, Flutter, for instance, by Google, you can just search for Flutter tutorial and get started. It's uh, it's really inspiring to see how some of the the newer generation of developers is getting up and running.
1: Yeah, knowledge flows. Knowledge flows much more easily around the world these days,
0: which is very cool.
1: Okay, we got to ask you a little bit about Boulder. What's your favorite thing to do or favorite hobby in Boulder?
0: Hiking. Hiking, definitely. Uh, I have a two-year-old daughter, so we like to go for, for walks up the mountain. Uh, snowboarding is the other one. So Colorado has a lot to offer today.
1: Well, not only does Colorado have a lot to offer, but Terry, you have a lot to offer. And uh, this was a great episode. It's really been fun at GGV. We're, we're super proud and excited to be involved with uh, the stream story now. And we can't wait to see where you guys go. And we're looking forward to meeting in person one of these days.
2: Yeah. Let's do that.
1: Yes, let's make that a goal for 2021. And we're excited about this episode as well. It's going to be great. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks, Terry. Thank
1: you for having me. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages 6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, HelloBike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at ggvcapital or
2: ggvcapital on WeChat.